You're listening to Creativity Quest, hosted by me, author and writing mindset coach, Carrie Schaefer. Join me and my guests on our quest to ditch our doubts, dance with our demons, and delve into creative delight. Creativity Quest is owned and copyrighted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Now, let's get creative. creative people. Welcome back to another edition of Creativity Quest. We have a fascinating guest today that I can't wait to introduce you to, but just before I do that, I do want to give you a little bit of news, and this is from my alter ego, Carrie Ann King, who, by the way, has a book coming out October 1st, and so there's all kinds of news, and I have exciting things that I want to share, but it goes first to my inner circle people. So if you want to get in on that and you're not on the newsletter yet, pop over to my website, Carrie Ann King, that's K-E-R-R-Y-A-N-N-E-K-I-N-G.com backslash inner circle and that's inner with a hyphen circle or you know just message me and I'll tell you how to get there sign up for the newsletter and I will tell you all about the inner circle coffee party happening on September the 1st at 9 a.m. Pacific time for inner circle people only it's going to be super fun and I have some really cool news so join me there and now with no further ado I want to introduce to you Patrick Creerand, who writes, well, I'm going to let him describe to you what he writes. I have a book of short stories here called The Paper Life They Lead. Patrick's stories have appeared in McSweeney's Quarterly Concern, Conjunctions, New Orleans Review, Ninth Letter, Indiana Review, Cimarron Review, among others, and it received special mention in the Best American Non-Required Reading and Best American Fantasy Anthologies. Currently, he's an Associate Professor of English Literature and Creative Writing at St. Leo University in Florida, where he lives with his wife and three kids. Hey, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me today, Carrie. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. I just know straight up because these stories, these little stories in this book are, I'm going to just use the word weird for starters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, what kind of genre do, do you consider this to be? Well, it's a great question. Um, I don't really know uh, <laughs> myself, um, mainly because uh, I think it's a good question to ask after the fact. But ah. when you're when you're working in it, you know, I, I don't know if it. I never think about it, and yeah. I don't know if it, it it you know helps me so much. Other than maybe on occasion, I'll look up at what I've written. And sometimes have this, a similar reaction that you had. I'll, I'll say to myself, "This this is sort of weird." Well, uh, or, let me clarify. I like weird. I should, sure. should have said that straight no, up. I, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but you know, I feel the same way that uh, you know. Sometimes I'm I'm writing something that feels fairly realistic, and then something odd happens, and um, and you know, for me, I feel like that's where 
the story has some life and, and where the, char- the characters start making more interesting decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of that, uh, I just keep going. And then when it... <laughs> And then when it's done, I guess I start to think a little bit about what it is or what to call it. And if it's somewhere, <laughs> you know, between like magical realism or fantasy or any of those, I, I think um, I don't mind, uh, you know. <laughs> there's there's <laughs> but, nothing that really necessarily fits I think and and that's yeah. that's something that actually this is a pet peeve of mine and I, I that was a bad question for me to ask it was kind of mean of me because I don't really like genre myself I sure you know, yeah I read everything and therefore I tend to want to write everything and um, that whole crossing of all the lines is where a lot of my favorite books are actually located is when somebody's you know had the had the guts to try and put something out that doesn't really confine itself to any <laughs> particular category yeah I I feel the same way right I I can tell that and so you know for (laughs) um for those of you who are not looking at the book um which by the way is called the paper life they lead I okay so the very very first one let's talk about that because this is kind of what you just said so characters are going along doing the normal thing it's a normal day and then all of a sudden it gets weird so in the very first story we have a whole plane full of people just you know flying along when all of a sudden the pilot decides "Mm, he always wanted to go to outer space right Um, and and things go from there Yeah, so it's sort of a, a worst case scenario from my own perspective, having flown, uh, not being such a huge fan of flying, and and uh, just sort of thinking about what could be the um, the lack of control that you have when you enter a plane, and right. and and how much that opening statement from the from the pilot matters. So, I mean, it just seems. No one ever really listens because they never really say anything other than we're flying to this place. And sometimes I listen to, just to hear what the weather sounds like. And I love, I love when they try to give a euphemism for like, we're going to be thr- flying through a lot of thunderstorms and it's probably going to be a bad flight. But, right. <laughs> you know, they never, they never say that. They're, they're, they always have some uh, code that they use, you know, oh, it'll be a little bumpy, but... Uh, you know, we'll get the beverage service in fast or something like that. Right. <laughs> so, it, you know, for me, I, I felt like um, if from the beginning of a story that you could, you could definitely set, uh, if, if you got a message like that, then it would just have some interesting consequences. And, and I just sort of followed what those consequences would be. And um, yeah, and, and, and so... But after that, you know, the story for the most part is somewhat realistic. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I try to, I try to use that to, as, as sort of a, a backstop, you know. Right. Well, um, well sure. I'm, I'm intrigued by, you know, you said, so this idea kind of came while you were, I'm, I'm always interested in where creativity, how it happens. And last week on the podcast, we had Warren Berger here talking about the book of beautiful questions. And one of his favorite questions is the what if question. And, sure. it, and it sounds like that's, that's kind of where this story came from for you do you do you find that you ask what if a lot is that you know where a lot of your ideas seem to come from 
Uh, definitely. I probably asked the question too much. Uh, <laughs> it's responsible for too, like a lot of anxiety in my life, I would say also. And you have a kind of an overactive imagination where you can, uh, you know, you can see things that could possibly happen. And, and uh, so in, in some ways, I, I suppose it's a therapeutic response to try to write some stories out of the scarier ones that I, I can imagine and, and uh, do something positive with them instead of just sure. drive, drive me crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar with that, you know, taking the what if too. It's, um, I'm, I'm also licensed as a nurse, so I know some of the bad answers. So, you know, I can yeah. in the middle of the night, if there's a cold coming on, I can go from the, oh, I might be getting a cold to I'm dying of lung cancer within you know, 30 seconds flat pretty right. much with that, with the what if question. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't, yeah. And I've never been on a bad flight. I mean, I've never been on a flight that crashed or with a pilot like this or anything, but um, <laughs> which I, I suppose like opens up room for more of the, you know, in my own head, I'm just like, well, it's, it's out there. It's waiting for me. It's going to happen one of these times. Right. So, well, it, could, <laughs> it could happen. I don't know if you heard, we had a guy actually, I think it was at the SeaTac airport, which is near me here in uh, Seattle. Okay. We had a guy, he was not a pilot, but he uh, worked at the airport who actually took over a plane. He, he got on a plane, he took off and he flew around for a couple hours and did all <laughs> kinds of stunts. And then, you know, finally realized that coming down was probably not a good idea and crashed himself. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah. But, but it's, it's, you know, those kinds of things that don't you find that sometimes the stuff that you make up that's really weird is still not as weird as real life things. Uh, yeah. And I, I've, um, you know, I've had, I've had this experience a few different times where I've written something and, um, and when I wrote it, I was like, it just, it just won't have enough of, a footing in reality for people to go with it a little bit. Right. And especially with technology, I would say. And, and then less than a year later, um, you, you know, thinking of it or I see something on the news or something like that, where the, the idea that I had, had that I thought was so revolutionary has been surpassed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and, and all of a sudden it's almost mundane what I, you know, what I came up with. And, um, I, I was, I was working on a, a novel that I sort of abandoned about, um, that took place on a college campus and they, they moved all the kids in and they gave them, um, kind of like a visor with, um, uh, uh where they were, they were going to mine, they were going to work in a mine. Uh, that was the reality of their situation, but they were going to put this um, kind of 3D visor on them so that they were actually collecting something else. So they, they, they didn't mind working in a mine, basically. Okay, and so they the didn't know it what like, it was that they were doing because they had this... Absolutely not. Yeah, okay. and then they were enthralled with this game, just enthralled with the game that they were looking at on their, on their, their thing. And of course, like Google Glasses came out, and, and this is way before any... It was maybe like 2003 when I was working on it. And, right. Um, you know, and then since then... You know, now we have that where, um, and it's not that different. I mean, it's no different than like what Ray Bradbury was talking about in Fahrenheit 451, where, you know, the wife, Montag, is it Montag? I think his wife is, uh, you know, she wants the fourth wall in her, uh, in her room so that she can be entirely surrounded by television the whole time. And, uh, 
and we, you know, it's, um, so his ideas were a little bit more, <laughs> he's, he's better than I am. My, <laughs> mine have only lasted, you know, the idea that I, you know, coming up with for that, you know, it's like five years. So he at least got a few more years out of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I, yeah. I do have to say, you don't strike me as the kind of guy to shy away from an idea because you're not sure people will go with you. And I'm, I'm referencing the whole, <laughs> um, let's talk about the car. So <laughs> sure. There's a story about a Pontiac Sunfire who um, begins attending classes, high school classes, in place of its owner. So, <laughs> I'm like, you know, there's pre- there's precedence for this because Stephen King, you know, and Christine, right? Yeah. Um, but your sure. your car's not scary. <laughs> so, where where yeah. where did that idea come from? Do you do you know how you you know decided? that maybe you would write something like that? Or is that one of those things that just showed up on the page and you went with it? Um, a little bit. Uh, you know, I had, um, in this is going to sound crazy, but in a strange way, it's a little bit biographical because I have a friend named Brian Sullivan and he did drive a Pontiac Sunfire. Um, <laughs> but that's about it. <laughs> uh, in terms of the, the, you know, the reality. Um, but yeah, in in the the first story and in this story, I think um, I came up with a version of the first line, not the final version, but I came up with a a premise um, of it. And you know, because they're pretty premise heavy stories, and um, and then what I wanted to try to do was was to see if I could make it work. And really, what I'm like, what I was trying to do, and, and what I'm hoping to do is to make people. Uh, care about the situation even after they've been given this sort of ridiculous premise. <laughs> um, and I, I always thought that you, you have sort of like, uh, you know, maybe a paragraph w- where people are like, should I keep reading this? Or, sh-, you know, and then if you can convince them after that paragraph, I think you can get a page and then, you know, it's sort of this negotiation that you're always you know, using with, with a reader. And, um, so with that one, I was, okay, so this is ridiculous. You know, there's, (laughs) you know, and how can I make people, um, you know, not forget a little bit about the ridiculous, uh, ridiculousness of it and, and find some commonality with a car that has some success and some, Whoa, uh, difficulty su- in high school. Some, some success and difficulty in high school, and then after high school, oh my god! <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Which, yeah, which, which I thought was, um, in in that part, you know, it, it did come later when I was thinking more on it, and I think it's it's a risk. I, I think when you do, because I've written, certainly I've written some stories that have been just as premise heavy and then just haven't worked out. I could never really, I couldn't get to that part um, where I would sort of forget about the premise and, and uh, engage with, with the character. And I think with the human stakes of the story in some way, even if the character is human and, um, and, you know, but with this one, I felt like I could, and <laughs> yeah know. yeah well sure yeah. human humanize the cars <laughs> sure yeah sure. um is, is this i i love this by the way that you 
have the creative freedom and flexibility that you get an idea and then you just, you know, sit down and play with it like that. A lot of us, I think where we get blocked is this, we think too much before, yeah. before we will let ourselves start writing. And so this um, playfulness, it almost, it, do, you, do you have that sense of it for you? Is it, is it playful or are you more serious about what you do than I would guess that you are? Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think playfulness is, is the key and, and allowing yourself sort of to silence the, the critic for, for a little while and because it's you know the critic is always waiting i find like there's never a time where you know in my head i open the critic's door and and you know the critic isn't standing in the threshold immediately (laughs) with about five things to say about how this is not gonna work and (laughs) you know you're dumb for even trying it and that kind of thing um so I, i and some of it is uh, you know, like I was saying, I think with some of the stories that, you know, I haven't been able to, you know, to finish or I, I think that's probably what happens is that the critic gets invited in too early you, and I haven't been able to play enough to sort of make myself forget and, and care a little bit more about, about those characters in some way. Right, right. I, so out of curiosity, um, because you are also a teacher, how how does that impact your creative process at all? Does does it does it make it better? Does it kind of tend to get in the way when you're taking that <laughs> role with others? I I think it's one of the what you were saying about the sense of play. I think is is uh, is one of the toughest things to to teach because I think a lot of times um, when you, I, I'm in the role of the critic sometimes on their work. I, I'm critiquing student work and, and, um, and I certainly have, uh, you know, teachers in my head, um, certain, you know, their, their lessons for better or for worse sometimes. Um, but I think, I think ultimately it, it, it can drive creativity. It can help you, um, you know, when I'm trying to help students with stories and, and help them think, um, help them realize the potential sometimes of ideas that they have. And, and, um, and, and I think seeing, you know, their own self-critic come in at certain points and, and trying to, um, you know, get in the way of, of a piece of work. I think it helps me recognize when that's happening and, and to be a little kinder to myself as well. Right. Um, which, which is hugely important. I have this, this whole sort of uh, controversial take on the inner critic, which is that it's part of us. It's, you know, our critic is us, basically. And maybe it's things we've integrated from the past. And I'm, I'm kind of on this role of learning to integrate that critic rather than silencing it and fighting it. Um, it it's a, I have a whole new, I'm actually launching a class here in a few weeks. So pay, pay attention guys, if you're interested, I'll, I'll have more about that. So it's, it's kind of, you know, listening to that and, and knowing, I mean, we need the critic, right? It's like you yeah. play critic for your students, they need you. So how can we turn that into a more healthy relationship? How can we allow ourselves to play and then bring the critic in when, when needed uh, to serve the purpose that, 
we have a critic for. Um, it, it's a whole another fascinating process process altogether of the creative thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, in, in, you know, wholeheartedly that you know the critic is 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 there, and there's no sense denying <laughs> it, and you do need it, and yeah. and uh, um, you know, and I've found that the um, I think the timing of when the critic comes in is is yeah. always key. Yeah, so I, I totally agree. I, I agree with that. I see that with clients uh, a lot, actually, who are, you know, in the creative process and they're busy and they're writing and they have a brilliant idea and then they show it to somebody too soon and they get the criticism and it's still too fragile and everything's crushed and the energy goes away. And so right. <laughs> we, we, all, we probably all have been there and yeah. probably most of us have done the crushing, actually, at some point. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, you know unintentionally sometimes but definitely unintentionally. I, I've, I've seen it you know I, I definitely have seen it on students faces before and and uh you know I think it you know th there's really nothing you can do other than to try to do better the next time just, <laughs> uh yeah well but, and those are key words right there I think um the next time. And so just part of this wonderful, playful approach to the creative process is there's always more. There's always right. another story and another idea and another place we can go and explore. So, you know, if one doesn't work, then it's time to find another one. Exactly. And I think it, it's always good to have a few things working at the same time. And um, that, that's usually advice that I give to my students. Be working on a few different projects because you'll get stuck. And when you get stuck with one, you can shift over to another. And it's amazing how sometimes the, um, you know, the sort of morass that you're in with one project uh, opens doors for the other project. You know, sure. Absolutely. So are you working on, you know, what's next for you before we go? Are, do you have any other projects in the works? So, yeah, I have, um, I have a collection of creative nonfiction essays that I'm sort of sending out and, um, uh, you know, I've collected into a book and then I'm working on, I have a novel also that I've been working on for a while now and, uh -huh. and, uh, and it's sort of coming around the bend, which is nice. <laughs> oh, that's always nice when the novel comes around the bend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's cooperating, at yeah. least this week it is. <laughs> Today and tomorrow may yeah. be another story, but just keeping it. in mind that there are good days and bad. So oh, I know. Well, it's it's been uh, fascinating talking to you guys. Um, the book, again, is called The Paper Life They Lead by Patrick Creerand. Uh, last name is spelled C-R-E-R-A-N-D. It's really fun um, and makes you think. So the stories are fun. They make you think. There, there's one really fascinating, The Paper Life They Lead, is Morning on the Pepperidge Farm box. So, like, the characters on the Pepperidge Farm. Um, <laughs> going through their lives. And, and I do, I have to give you huge kudos for this. To write a scary story with the dangerous predator as a sloth. <laughs> that, that I, you know, I, I love it. That's awesome. It's very, you Thank know, you. it's easy to write scary things about vampires and, uh, you know, <laughs> bears and lions and <laughs> whatever. But the sloth, that, that's a, that's a, 
brilliant stroke of creative genius right there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much again uh, for being with us today. And guys, look up the book, uh, Paper Light They Lead by Patrick Creerand. And again, if you want to know uh, the awesome Carrie Ann King news before anyone else knows it, check onto my website and sign up for my newsletter. And I will see you all next week. Thanks again, Patrick. Thank you. Go do something creative, guys. <laughs> <laughs>